This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Hello, Steve. God, it's hot. <laughs> it is uh, the throes of summer here, and uh, yeah, it's all. And we're not, and we're not even July yeah. yet. Like, what's the temperature uh, down there? Thirties. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's thirty eight is what it was saying yesterday. Which oh. I've never actually seen it where I live. I've never seen it above thirty, and it was saying thirty eight yesterday. And it felt like thirty eight. So crazy. Yeah, we just it says thirty six here, and it's just noon. And like like I was saying in the podcast to Brit that. We we can get minus forty in the in the winter, so this is crazy. We're gonna have an 80, 80 degree temperature swing in in the course mm-hmm. of a year, and it's. I feel sorry for those people in Lytton that were forty six degrees yesterday, hottest temperature ever recorded in Canada. That's nuts. Crazy, yeah, absolutely. Um, so great episode here uh, with uh, the one and only Britt Longoria. You know, she's. Uh, you know, uh, in the heat of controversy, the anti-hunting community uh, loves to hate her. Um, she's done a great job of telling her story, telling her why, and she talks about this on this podcast. And uh, really enjoyed sitting down with her. Very articulate and just a great listen to to you know the work that Britt's doing and and her story. Right? Oh, such a, such a neat lady. I reached out to her a couple months ago on Instagram and said, "Hey, would you consider it?" And she being under attack by aunties was was a little guarded so got to kind of develop a relationship and we we've, we made it work and i think this episode is incredible just such a neat lady to listen to and speak with yeah absolutely so um yeah we'd love to hear your feedback on it uh, to our listeners and just a point here we've uh we had some audio issues in the last one we got some feedback uh our talk uh, talk is sheep the taxidermy one with rackmaster um, so we switched up platforms here. We're trying this out. This is our first one with our new platform. So just give us some feedback on if you like it better, if you like it worse, just how the audio is. Trying some different stuff here, trying to get it right for you guys. And we appreciate everything. You, you know, when we get this feedback, we try and get it right for you. So um, love to hear from you regarding the audio quality on this one. And then also let us know what your thoughts are on, on Britt's um, comments. She's, you know, she's great to listen to and just tell such a great story and, and um, really enjoyed this chat with her. Oh yeah. Like I said, this is certainly up there with one of my favorites and uh, truly thankful for her spending an hour of her time to, uh, to chat with us. Awesome. So episode 35, Britt Longoria, enjoy the listen. 
If you looked up the words conservation superhero in the dictionary, you would see a picture of our friend Omer from Precision Optics, a tireless donor and supporter of all things wild sheep. Precision Optics, located in Quinell, British Columbia, truly stands alone in the high alpine. From optics to rifles to outdoor gear and a knowledge that cannot be surpassed, toss in that killer smile and you have a total conservation package. Precision Optics, we are truly thankful for the support you show us every step of the way. Find them online at precisionoptics.net or in Aroma Foods, located just off Highway 97 in Quinell, B. Well, good afternoon, I guess, uh, Britt. How's things with you? Wonderful, down here in Texas. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're super excited. Uh, Steve and I are both huge fans. We've been following you, as have millions of others, but uh, just uh, a real honor to have you on Talk of Sheep and and, you know, we're really excited to, to dive deep today with a bunch of the things you do. You do such a great job in the conservation community, all the hard work you do there and the legacy that your family's created. So we're really excited to touch in that. And then, you know, even, you know, one of the things that we're really struggling up here in British Columbia right now with is this uh, whole social license thing and the, the attack from the anti-hunting community. And uh, I guess, like it or not, you've kind of become that poster child. You, you're, uh, you know, you've You've got this whole group of uh, people that are kind of going after you. And, you know, you're really carrying a lot of, of weight for our community. And we're, we're grateful for the work you're doing. I think you're doing a fantastic job of telling your story. And we'd really like to dive into that today and, and talk to you about your, you know, your struggles and, and how you sort of ended up in that position, like it or not. So, <laughs> Yes, it was kind of the baptism by fire for sure. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, before we go there, Brett, you know, I, I know that you've got a long history with your family and the conservation community and the hunting community, and, you know, you grew up with it. So, you know, do you mind taking us back to your early days and kind of, you know, your first days of how you got involved in, I guess, in the hunting and, and sort of how that was, you know, part of your life and, and how that came about? Absolutely. So I grew up in southern Maine. So whitetail, rough grouse, woodcock kind of country. And my father, Joe Hosmer, would take me bird hunting. And that was really fun because it was social. It was generally warmer weather. It was watching the dogs work. Then he says like, okay, this, I could do this. This is cool. Then he took me sea duck hunting in January on the Atlantic coast. And I was like, no, this is so uncivilized. (laughs) This is so hardcore. I have so much appreciation for for duck people, but this isn't, I don't enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) And then he took me white-tailed deer hunting and you basically sit in the forest and you know, dad would have a can of sardines or maybe a little thermos of hot chocolate. And I had my little pink Swiss army knife and I'd whittle a stick and we wouldn't see anything. And it was like, okay, well, what's the big deal about hunting? Cause all you do is you just sit under a tree for the day and you don't see anything. Okay. Well, that's hunting, but I don't really, I don't really need to do that often. So my thing was upland birds. And that was, like I said, just great social, warm weather, friendly, fun, easy. Um, I grew up with bird dogs. So that was all kind of the the icing on the cake, really, was going and actually seeing them in the field working was what I just fell in love with. So that was kind of my exposure to hunting. Dad would often invite me on some of his big game hunting 
um, adventures. And I was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to stick with, with birds. I don't want to shoot anything bigger than me. That was, that was always my rule. And I was probably 10, 11 and that eliminated a lot of things, basically everything. (laughs) So (laughs) that was how I started hunting. Um, and then actually went with my mom down to Texas. We had bought a, an auction hunt that was donated. I think it was a father-son hunt and mom bought it and I went. So we're like, hey, we're not really the father-son duo, but we're here to try it. And we got our licenses and we we're both super nervous and you know, never had shot anything. And we went hunting um, actually at the Wyo Ranch. And I shot a black Hawaiian ram and it felt kind of icky. Like it was like, the thing was just standing there. It it didn't even care that we were there. Like this is, to me, this is very odd. And I want, okay, let me, I did this. Now let me try something a little bit more in participation. And so then I, I hunted a uh, black buck uh, antelope, small antelope. And that was more of a hunt. We got out, we walked it stocked, we moved around, we used the wind, we did stuff. And then it's like, okay, you know, it was a good shot. Everything went as planned. We got the meat shipped back up to Maine. We had some taxidermy done and it was like, okay, well, this is fine. And that was probably about 12 or 13. Um, still wasn't into the sea ducks or the white tailed deer, but you know, this big game hunting wasn't as, as, you know, different as I, as I thought it would be. I find your journey very interesting. So you go from that, you know, harvesting a, a black buck at 13 to, I'm just going to move to Africa on my own without mom and dad. So, um, you know, that's a pretty big leap of faith and, um, and Africa is part of your DNA now. It's a big part of what you do. So obviously it was pretty impactful. So uh, how did you transition from going from a 13 year old big game hunter with your mom to all of a sudden now you're off to Africa on your own solo? Well, Africa was definitely a dream to have a safari company, and it was inclusive of ecotourism and photographic. And I mean, I went through every travel magazine and watched every documentary and just was this little tiny little expert on on Africa, or at least sub-Saharan Africa, and just was like, all right, this is is where I'm going to go. So I went and worked for a hunting company in in the summers during my summer holidays from from high school, um, all through high school, and then went to college over overseas over in South Africa. That's fantastic. So, um, and that that transition, like at, at twenty, you started your own company um, over there, and like so, um, you know, you know what what precipitated that? Where did this come from? So, uh, you know, you. You obviously weren't, um, it was a slow evolution, right? Just from, you know, upland game hunting to, you know, you know, slowly easing your way into big game hunting and then, okay, I'm going to run this ecotourism business in Africa at the age of 20. So was there an event in your life that precipitated that? Is it kind of, was it your dad's journeys? Was it his, what he was doing and his interests that sort of sparked that? Or how did that happen? I think with my my parents have or had a uh, telecommunications company where they did engineering for designing telephone systems all over the world. And so what 
they did and what was very normal dinner time conversation traveling was all very normal to me because that was how I was brought up so is it the location not necessarily but just the comfort level with with the world in general was a very normal aspect so I think that it it was yes definitely their influence but they had never gone to South Africa because at the time when they were working in East and West Africa, uh, South Africa was under apartheid. And so no businesses could do um, the transboundary type type work. Very cool. So um, now can you, can you share, you need to educate me on this because I don't understand it um, fully. Um, I've traveled all over the world except for Africa. I've never been to the, uh, step my foot on the continent of Africa. Steve had a trip planned there last year, or uh, this maybe this uh, year, I guess. September of 2020, I had won a safari to South Africa, and, well, COVID hit. <laughs> so, yeah, that would have been my excursion. So, I've never stepped on the continent, and I've heard the stories. It's beautiful. But when I talk to people about the experience and about Africa, um, it's it's a – you know, it, it becomes something bigger than life. It's, you know, they can't describe it. And, um, and it seems like, well, it's one of those things until you've been there, you never really understand it. What, what is Africa for you? What is it, the allure of Africa that makes it so amazing and so, uh, compelling that you want to be part of that? Oh, as you say, it's, it's bigger than life. Um, for me, one of my big passions and driving forces in my travel are wild places. I love to be in the wilderness and that can be in Alaska or that can be in Pakistan or it can be in Zambia. And to be able to experience wildlife in its native ranges, doing their native things without much human management is a, is a very special and unique thing that hunters are able to access. Um, oftentimes in kind of more of a industrial world or industrial setting, we have game farms and ranches and wildlife sanctuaries and national parks and state reserves and stuff like this. And it's almost like these little pseudo kind of a little bit more wild than a zoo, but it gives you the impression of being in wilderness. But when you go out and experience those backwoods and have it in Africa, where you have the biodiversity of not only wildlife, but the biodiversity of the plants, the insects, the the birds. I mean, it's just, it's overwhelming to have all these elements layered upon each other, creating this overall experience. Fantastic. So, you know, Britt, it's interesting. You talk about Africa there and you speak it with such reverence. Um, and and if you were to speak to the average human or even an anti-hunter and, and explain it like that, they'd be like, yeah, that's how I see it too. And I love it. And it's amazing. And, you know, you talk about the biodiversity and, and I know you've, you're very conscious about sustainability and, um, but all of a sudden the word hunting gets involved and we sort of start going sideways on this. So, you know, and Africa is actually quite nuanced. It's it's, it's very divisive, right? Um, you know, it's uh, often associated with quote trophy hunting and that sort of thing. Um, you know, we get a, I think a bit of a pass in North America when we say, "Oh, it's for sustenance," right? Um, but 
when we go to Africa and, and they see that experience. But, you know, as hunters, we do a, an amazing amount of great work for conservation in Africa, right? And there's a very compelling case there. Do you think we'll ever be able to tell that Africa story and and have people understand it? Probably not the anti-hunting community, but I think even the general public has a hard time understanding it. I'm always trying to educate my friends on, in Africa in particular, right? They can kind of get their head around North America, but when you start talking, talking to Africa, you start losing people. How do we do a better job of telling that story? And I know you're dealing with this almost daily. So what are your thoughts on that? No, it's, a, it's actually a very interesting paradigm where you have North American hunters that I think it's 80 or 85% are totally fine with hunting as long as it's for filling the freezer. And then when you use the word trophy, it automatically switch switches this concept that it's a negative. And what the anti-hunting community has done an incredibly great job at is weaponizing our own vocabulary. Mm -hmm. So we can, as hunters, say, okay, there's, there's really no black and white of who hunters are in certain silos. I mean, you can have someone who's a meat hunter that you walk into their living room and they have taxidermy up. And you're like, oh, well, I thought you were a meat hunter. And you're like, well, wait a second. No, well, this was this was the first year I shot with my Uncle Bob. And this is really special because X, Y, Z, da, da, da. And it's like, hey, that's awesome. That's mm -hmm. great. And so there, when someone blocks themselves into those, like I said, these silos, it creates external friction with all these other groups. So it's, you know, it goes into the whole thing of, you know, traditional archery versus crossbow versus, you know, running with, with hounds versus baiting versus trapping, blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh my gosh, people <laughs> just relax. And it's the same thing with, with hunting overseas. People get wound up with the concept of how much it costs that, oh, okay, well then they're just affluent people. They're, they must be SOBs and whatever, or it gets into the concept of, okay, well, they're just going to fill their trophy room. Well, I haven't collected taxidermy for about seven or eight years now. Um, so you, you keep, you, you go down these cycles of, you know, you can't, define any of us based on our own individual motivations. So for instance, when I talk about hunting from a conservation perspective, you have the ability to tangibly implicate the impact from a hunter. So we just got back from Senegal, which is a little tiny country in West Africa. If you think of kind of the, the bump, the horn of Africa, it's right in the center. Um, it is about 12 million people and about 8 million of the people live on the coast in Dakar. So you fly into Dakar and I'm, I'm, Dakar, people will probably even recognize that name from like the Paris Dakar races and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Other, other regional fun activities. <laughs> so you fly into Dakar and you get picked up at the airport and you're driving for about three and a half hours out to a game reserve. Now the game reserve is owned by the government with a private partnership with private investors and individuals running and managing the tourism aspect. And 
on your way, all you're seeing is dirt and baobab trees. Now, baobab trees are these incredibly large, almost spongy looking trees that look like they're planted upside down with like the roots are sticking up. I mean, they're just a like a Jurassic Park kind of looking tree. And so if you imagine these trees that are probably three times the height of your house and about as wide as, you know, a car, maybe two or three cars with nothing but dirt for literally probably two hours. That's the impact of human population. So you're driving from the city into more rural areas and, you know, things are a little bit sparser and you kind of get into more of the villages and you see all these, you know, cows and goats crossing the road and stuff. And then you literally cross into the national park and it's a different world. There's, like I was saying, the, the biodiversity, you see the different trees, you see the different grasses, the different plants, the different animals. You have all these things, but it is within a man-made boundary to protect it. And what they do is they offer two hunting permits per year for the Western Giant Eland, which is very similar to the Lord Derby Eland, um, which is one of the largest antelope in the world. And their deal is is that they have a low season of photographic safaris. So they essentially shut down the lodge for about a week, twice a year, and have a hunting safari take place. Beautiful lodge, great food, fabulous accommodations, and you're hunting essentially in a in a park. I mean not like a park like a zoo, but it's a, a national park. And you are able after the safari to fund, create the revenue in one let's say four or five day period, the same amount of revenue that's generated over four months with photographic safaris. So the the point is, is that there is a time and place for hunting and there is a time and place for photographic safaris. There's a time for national parks to remain completely untouched and without human encroachment or mining or infrastructure but then there's also a time when you're able to include hunting which generates a completely different level of value and I've seen this happen in a lot of very rural places where you can have a tremendous impact on high dollar hunting which again, plays into stereotypes of, well, who's going to pay for that and stuff like that. But at the same time, there are people out there that do contribute and want to do something. So this is one example. And you're able to see this aspect where it's not like, oh, wow, I'm such a great conservationist because I went and killed something. That's what is often kind of the taglines on social media stuff when the antis come after any of us that it's like well how can you be a conservationist and mm -hmm. it's like the the terminology 
is that hunting is land conservation. When a hunter goes and utilizes an area for hunting, they don't need paved roads. They don't need air-conditioned accommodations. They don't need the types of things that are required by the general public that enjoy photographic safaris. It's like I said, it's a balance. It's between both. But there is a time and place for hunting that truly supports the concept of land conservation and keeping wilderness wild. Yeah, fantastic. So with that, Britt, like there's so much controversy, right? Like when, you know, it's okay that somebody can go there and take pictures. and But as soon as you come in and, and you're, you know, you're harvesting an animal, um, you know, how do we how do we do a better job of communicating that? Or, or, or why are people so bent out of shape? Like you look at that, you got four months of revenue to support that national park, basically, um, that, or, you know, the equivalent of that over four or five days by hunting and people just go ballistic. They don't even care about it. It doesn't become about money anymore, which it just, and, and you're removing two animals. That's it. Right. Which are going to die naturally anyway. We know that. Mm -hmm. Right. Or, die a horrible death by a predator or something like that other than it'll it'll definitely die more humanely by your hands than by uh um, something else so you know i just find it interesting that it's so emotive and um you know and it's interesting i i I like what you said uh hunting is land conservation we've always kind of got beat up where we say hunting is conservation right uh the Mm antis just they love to jump on that one right and they're like well no it's not and um you know i think you know I think that's one thing that you've done a good job as is changing how you present what you do um, and, um, you know, telling that story and doing a better job of it because we somewhere along the line, it's, there's been a disconnect and we, you know, I think our narrative has to change and it just seems that we're having a really tough time trying to articulate that. Right. So um, yeah, I, I'd love to hear any more of your thoughts on how we can do a better job. And, I, you know, you're inspirational for sure. When I look at your social media feed and mm-hmm. how you present things, um, and I think that yourself and you look like another, like Jim Shockey's a classic example where you tell your story. It's about the people. It's about the wild places. It's about the biodiversity, um, about sustainability. It's very rarely about the kill, right? Um, and, and when you do present that, you do it in such a fantastic way. And I think we as hunters, we need to start doing a better job of that. Um, do you have any tips or suggestions or, or input on how we can do a better job on that? Well, I think that if we start by looking at the root of how we communicate, oftentimes when we're communicating to someone who is a non-hunter, that we're immediately on the defensive. We have, we have a point that we're going to justify with facts and figures why we're right. We can talk about, hey, the revenue from the past four days is better than this, and it provides meat here and jobs there. and da, 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 da. But all of those reasons that are all very valid and, and great are not why I go hunting. And... If we can step back from justifying with facts and figures with the black and white and start justifying with our emotions, we're going to be able to speak more clearly to people that are coming at us from an emotional perspective. Because there's there's always an element, I, I tell a story that, I mean, I'm married, so I'm allowed to, that have you ever fought with your wife or your significant other and you're like, 
you are so emotional right now. You're not even listening to mm-hmm. me. Let's listen, listen to what I'm saying. And they're like, rah, rah, rah. <laughs> that's me. That's an impression of me, not your wife. <laughs> but it, it's like, it's like when you're talking from facts and figures to emotion, you don't talk to each other. You talk over each other. Mm-hmm. But if you come at the conversation from the perspective of the other person, then you're able to talk on the same level. So for instance, I might be super emotional about a situation that I'm telling my husband, Ricardo, all this stuff. And if he's black and white with me, it's going to wind me up even more. And it's going to feel like, oh, well, he's not listening to me. He doesn't get this. This is why. And then there is the key to the whole conversation is understanding the why. And that was one of my big aha moments when everything went wild with my leopard photo that, you know, everyone, it was getting picked up by international media and California, Hollywood, and it just went around the world. And it still pops up every now and then was that after about a week of just this overwhelming bombardment of hatred and death threats and just d- disgusting commentary that I understood what they were asking, that the question that they were asking wasn't about me as an individual, that they didn't know Brett Longoria. They didn't know anything to do with the hunt or anything like that, that they were projecting their conversation onto this image. And in, in fact, they were asking why, why are you smiling in this photo? Mm -hmm. Why did you go and spend the money to travel overseas to go hunt a leopard? Why did you hunt? Why did, I mean, on and on and on, but, but it was very interesting. Like I said, it became this aha moment when I understood what their questions were was internal versus the scientific black and white. That's interesting. And I think, you know, us as hunters, we have to, we have to do a better job of being authentic in our conversations too, because, mm-hmm. you know, this comes up and you're like, well, look at all the money that we put into Africa. Look, we did this, we did that. But, you know, that's not why we're there. We're not, you know, it, that's not our primary focus. We're there for an experience and, and a million reasons, but it's probably not to support the African ecosystem, right? Like it's one of the things that makes us feel good. I think when we go there, probably I've never hunted there, but when I hunt, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm contributing. But um, when we have these conversations with anti-hunters and we try and justify it with just science and and facts and figures, which support what we do, we're not being genuine on what we're doing, right? That's not why we're doing it. It's not, you know, we're not altruists. We're doing it because we're passionate about it. We love oh, it. A sure. hundred other reasons, right? So, well, you've, for, you've heard for me sure. Say, and, and oh, go ahead. Yeah, you've heard me say it many times, Kyle, over the years that uh, the the best hunting trips I've ever had, I've never even reached for my rifle. It's always about the memories and the experience and the conversation and connecting with the, the, the landscape. And even wrote an article about it where we, we some friends of ours and I. We all went out and we, we saw a great big black bear six in the morning and we all went, yeah, cool, neat. And we were just having a conversation. We, we went out for 10, 12 hours and never even reached for the rifles once. It was all about 
what we were hunting for that day was not an animal, right? And it's it's just that sort of thing that we can't even articulate. And we try, we try on one campfires, you know, that we try and show that connection and the emotional side without getting into the facts and figures, because you, you said it perfectly that it, it doesn't matter when your conversations here and theirs is down here, you're never, ever going to meet in the middle. So no, I love the way you said that. Well, I mean, think about last time you were around a campfire, even if it was just in your backyard. And think about the quality of conversation and laughter and fun and connectedness you had at that moment. Yes, we're able to connect on those types of levels in outdoor situations without hunting. But what's very, very unique about hunting is the ability to access a primal element that is almost spiritual in what we do. When we meet a hunting guide for the first time or you go hunting with a new hunting buddy, you develop a relationship and a rapport with them so much faster than you would if you were at a soccer game or you're out walking in the park. It is a different type of experience that when someone says, oh, we'll go hiking or go fly fishing or go do something like that, okay that's fun but accessing relationships through a hunting experience is very very different because you are submersing yourselves within a almost intrinsic type of I don't know it's because you're participating on a different level with nature And you have to make a choice, a life and death choice. It is extremely emotional. And it brings up these types of emotions that are hard to articulate in a normal setting that you're then sharing. And when you're able to share those types of things, you open up and you tell historical stories and lost loves and about this fight with this friend. And what do you do? I mean, it just it opens you up so much faster than any other type of setting. Oh, it, it really does. And that, that, I think that's another part of the disconnect that people, that, that, that hunters have with the non-hunters. Well, not so much the non-hunter, but the anti-hunter is that hunters realize that we're a part of nature. And as such, we have an impact on the landscape. And the anti-hunters seem to forget that. And even, even if you're vegetarian, vegan, pescatarian, in order for us to live, something has to die. And they, they I, I don't know if it's, uh, a willful ignorance or if it's just something that they don't want to reconcile within themselves that they, they don't want to to come to terms that they're, they're killing something and hunters are, we're not so much okay with it, but we understand it a little better. I think. Well, and I think that that's the whole thing that you just said, that it's not so much that we're okay with it, but that we're, we're okay with that timing of when it does take place mm-hmm. and to understand the impact and the severity of when we decide to pull a trigger or release an arrow, that there's a life on the other side of it. And those are the moments that we as hunters don't really talk about it because it's private. I mean, those are, that's one of the most sacred moments that we have. And within the hunting community is so male dominated that we as a culture 
that's not something that we're brought up to talk about. And not that it's bad or anything like that, but just emotionally, that's not something that's normal. And when when you start to take a look at things from a cultural level, when you ask someone, oh, well, do you have a problem with an indigenous person hunting? Um, well, what if it's not for meat? What if it's for something spiritual or ceremonial or something like that? The, the answer 100% of the time is no, absolutely. That's part of their culture. And that's the whole thing is that we've lost our culture to be able to tell our stories of what we do. Yeah, that's that's the scary part, right? Um, and trying trying to, to claw that back is uh, is the hard part, and the and the hill we're up against these days. So, uh, there's a few things I want to jump into now, Brett. And uh, specifically, you touched on it before your leopard controversy. So, in 2018, for our listeners, um, you had a I guess a online event, I guess you could call it, incident or. Uh, <laughs> Uh, basically around your Instagram photo. Uh, well, no, it wasn't even Instagram. Uh, no. Tell tell a story for us about the leopard uh, on what happened and and how that you know the how it came to be and then and then the outcome of it. Um, if you could for us, please. Absolutely. So, as you said, in in uh, September of 2018, my leopard photo got swiped from the Safari Club International online record book. Um, at that time, I had one private Instagram account where it's just family photos and you know, there's probably a hundred followers or something like that. I mean, just literally friends. Um, and it was overwhelming to have a photo literally stolen that wasn't meant to be shared outside of the hunting community to go viral. So it, it went literally all over the world within a matter of a day or so. And it was just a firestorm of, of hatred and just over overwhelming, absolutely overwhelming. So after, I guess it was maybe about four or five months after that happened, I decided, you know what, this is, kind of like I was saying that with this aha moment where I understood that this wasn't about me as an individual, that I said, wait a second, I want to tell my story. I want to tell my story as an individual. Then you can judge me. Then you can hate me. <laughs> but let me tell you about it first. Rather than just being judged on a, on a photo and then having a narrative um, created around it that was so uh, convoluted from, from reality. So that's when I found um, that I could articulate what I felt emotionally, internally, along the journey of, of hunting um, as, as a collective experience. With that, you know, I find this really interesting. I see this often, and, and I'd like to hear your perspective on it. It seems like... Um, the women in our community who are a minority in the hunting community. So it's a male dominated, you know, uh, pursuit or pastime or hobby or sport, whatever you want to terminology you want to use. 
But I find that it's most emotive in the anti-hunting community when it's a pretty woman in front of an animal and it just evokes this emotion. So can you talk to that a little bit? Does that, does gender influence it? It seems to me on the surface, um, maybe I'm just seeing, you know, events like uh, yours blow up. Maybe it's just, I see it with men, but it seems to be more surrounded on the incident, like a seesaw incident or, you know, you know, something like that. It's not so much driven by the gender of the individual. And it seems like, um, you know, women get the worst hate, it seems to me. Is Do you find that's the case? And if so, why is that? Um, basically, in, in the 1970s, there was a major feminine movement. And there was one sect of the feminine group called eco-feminists. And they essentially helped to define the narrative of who is allowed to hunt and when they're allowed to hunt. And that trickles through to a lot of our stereotypes and our branding of when it's okay and when it's not okay. And so as a woman, they fall, you fall into a category of life giving. And when you're put into a category of taking a life, then it all of a sudden disbalances these stereotypes. So it's very difficult for people to grasp onto how can she do this? Why can she, she must've been brainwashed as a child or she must've, you know, this or that or da, 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 da. So they always have to come up with these other types of narratives to it because it doesn't fit into the cookie cutter of what, uh, who a hunter is or what a hunter looks like. So with this leopard event, and then this hasn't kind of ceased for you. It's continued. You've, you know, there's been a lot of sort of anti-hunting individuals that have attacked you personally on many levels. Uh, you know, and I, I understand recently that your Instagram account was was shut down. Um, you know, are you getting through to people? Are you are you telling your story better? You said, let me tell my story, then you can hate me. And have you told that story? Have you good, <laughs> done, done a good job of that? And um or, or is it still a big issue? Well, I think I'm telling it well if they're going to shut me down. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Someone, You're a threat, someone right? likes to keep me quiet. Yeah, <laughs> that picture is that picture no, is still but, circulating. Oh, it is. They're using it to sell these stop trophy hunting t-shirts. Um, yeah, I was like, hey, I should get a percentage of that. Yeah, I sent you that. I sent you a picture <laughs> last week or something. I'm like, oh, here it is again. <laughs> so it rallied a troop. Oh, hello. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> No, it's it's just it is an ongoing thing, and it it's also puts me in a position where other people who are getting bullied or having questions or how do I answer this reach out to me, and I love it because I can help them with their own narrative of what do they say or what do they do when this happens. So it's been definitely a learning experience, and I'm ever fine tuning my own personal why. Um, and I think that what's interesting about Instagram is that it's so visual that your, your image has to do a lot of the speaking. And when you have a good image, the story comes naturally that people will pause and actually read it. But a lot of, a lot of what you see can be like clickbait and that's, that's disappointing on a lot of the different hunting personalities and stuff, but that, that there's not the the meat to it, that there's just the the branding or just the selling of D 
t-shirts or whatever. For sure. So, you know, Britt, you've done a, a, a great job. You do a great job of articulating your, your why. Uh, not all of us are quite as talented as you. Um, and in fact, I've heard stories where guys are, and, well, hunting, the hunting community is like, oh, I, I don't, I don't post pictures anymore on, you know, I don't any kill sh- like any trophy shots or anything like that. I, I've stopped that. You know, what's, how's your feeling on that? Like, and I've, I've heard people say we, we as hunters should never, ever post another, you know, uh, uh, grip and grin again, ever. I've heard that story. Right. And then on the flip side, I see you do that and you do a, a fantastic job of telling a story around it and, uh, and really creating the narrative and, and so many other s- pictures as well. So uh, what's your feeling? Are we doing a disservice by posting? Should we not be? Should, is that something we as a community should visit? What are your thoughts on that? <sighs> it, it's a hard one because again, there's so many images that are great. I'm going to call them classic trophy photos that within our hunting community, we know it, we see it, we understand it. So to not share those, you're cutting out a whole group of people that know and love those images and and get it. But at the same time, when we're posting publicly, there has to be a different full story and an element of respect that goes along with those images. What I found works well with my social media is that if I'm going to post a traditional trophy photo, I do it in black and white. So then there's no, uh, there's no blood or there's no anything that is overwhelming the image away from just the story of the moment and kind of the, the, the post hunt traditions that go along with it. Um, Then I also post my, what I call honor the hunt style photos where it's more, a little bit more condensed where you have the animal, the hunter and a little bit of story tied into it. Um, And I find that for instance, on social media, those photos don't do as well as the trophy photos. So you can, we're almost like predisposed to like the grip and grin photos more and that's why I've chosen to do those in black and white to make it a little bit cleaner for someone who doesn't know hunting. That's not a, that's not a hunter themselves. Um, and then including a full story with it, as well as the honor the hunt style photos. Well, we've kind of beat up the social license and uh, you know communicating with the non hunter uh, pretty good there. Uh, any last thoughts or Steve, any last questions on that? And then, then I want to pivot and talk a little bit on the conservation angle of things and the work that you're doing in the community right now, uh, Brett, Steve, anything else? No, I, I, I think we covered it quite well. And I, I thoroughly enjoy reading Brit's uh, stuff on Instagram. So no, I, I, I think she's doing quite well. So uh, let's get on to the next point. I, I'm excited for this as well. Cool. For sure. So Brett, you went, uh, went off to get your master's degree from, uh, University of Denver um, around philanthropy and philanthropic leadership. They didn't take me because I couldn't say it. (laughs) So, um, which has led you to, uh, you know, this journey on conservation and and philanthropy and giving back. 
um, which I always love to see on your feed and, and learn about what you're doing there. So uh, can you maybe talk a little bit maybe about uh, the work that you do through Trinity Oaks as executive director and what's involved with your organization, what you guys are doing there and and, uh, and how you do what you do? Absolutely. So uh, through my company, Rock Environmental, I run uh, Trinity Oaks, which is a nonprofit based in San Antonio. And they work with basically a, a people of a financial need that do not have access to the outdoors. So in, in Texas, 96% of the state is privately owned. So if you do not have a lease or land or relationship with landowner, you don't have access to very much hunting and fishing. Um, everything is very privatized which is good and bad. Um, you have a tremendous hunting uh, community and commercial aspect, but you don't have the access to people who can't afford to do it. So with Trinity Oaks, we bring uh, veterans, first responders, terminally ill, underprivileged youth, anyone and everyone uh, who needs outdoor experiences and could benefit from it, 100% uh, free of charge. So that's how Trinity Oaks works is, again, tying into the emotional internal sides of, of the outdoors through active participation, creates these opportunities that are healing and life-changing for so many people. And so what, what kind of activities, like you're connecting with the outdoors, but I think, you know, the, it sounds like there is hunting, there is, uh, it, what sort of activities are involved in that? Is it exclusively like hunting opportunities? Are there other aspects to it, Brett, or what's involved? It's hunting, fishing, uh, sporting clays, skeet shooting, uh, 3D archery range, rifle handguns, uh, game viewing. Uh, we have a area where we've often found um, arrowheads. So we take kiddos out to some archaeological sites and talk about the land and the land use. Um, the The ranch that, that Trinity Oaks has is called the Thumbtack Ranch, and it's in Batesville. It's about 2,000 acres. And right now we're working to put a conservation easement on it and make sure that it's accessible in there for for future generations just kind of the same thing of of being an all-inclusive hunting and fishing outdoor destination uh, that's fantastic and, and it looks i had a quick look at trinity oaks and, and all the things that you guys were doing it sounds like you got a, a lot of events and there's been thousands of people through is that correct uh, like am i reading that right or i i that, that's huge like to move that many people through and and have that much impact on yeah. on people Yes, it's it. It really is amazing because you can have a one day youth event. Well, we call it H two O adventure camps, and for instance, Weatherby Foundation um, International is is the big title sponsor for us, and they help us do these events throughout the state and through one event, which gives kiddos a taste of shooting, fishing. Um, so shooting as in with a 22 rifle, as well as with a shotgun, uh, fire starting, basic uh, wilderness first aid, outdoor cooking, 
and then some other little things like calling in whitetail, rattling, stuff like that. Um, we'll we'll have 150 kids go through the program in a day. So you multiply that by 52 weeks a year, and then all the veterans and first responder programs that we have. Uh, generally, we have two or three programs happening per per weekend, um, and it just goes goes goes. So it's an incredible network of volunteers and other landowners that donate their their properties and their excess game. So it's a, a quite a quite a big network. Oh, fantastic! Well, congratulations on that. It's such a great program, and it'd be great if we could just get that all across, you know, North America. If every community was doing that, it would certainly change their perspective on being connected to the land base. Um, you know, us as um, using the land base sell as hunters as anglers i think there'd be a lot more respect for what we're doing and they have a better understanding if we could get everyone involved in that capacity right so absolutely and even if it's just a, a sampling that, that that people don't have to all become hunters but if they have an understanding and a respect of of who we are then that's great because we don't want to convert everyone i mean that's just impossible but if we can give these little samplings to people so that they say oh, okay we're not these bloodthirsty killers running around with automatic weapons it's like no guys <laughs> mm-hmm. we we fill the freezers we love our families this is a wonderful thing to to do together uh so brett um no conversation with you is ever complete without touching on the fantastic work your family's done and specifically your dad joe Haas murray's uh, you know, created such a legacy, um, you know, as the first president of the SCI Foundation. Uh, I think he served there for seven years. He served on the SCI's board of directors as uh, the corporate treasurer and president, uh, you know, Hall of Fame winner with SCI and has done so much work in the conservation community. Um, do you mind talking a little bit about your dad, the legacy he's left, the impact he's had on your life, and and maybe touch on what you're most proud of, of, of what he's left behind, Um and and just touch on that for us, please. Do we have another hour? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the issue, right? <laughs> Literally, right? <laughs> oh, my dad, he's awesome. No, I mean it's it's like he his his love after retiring. He never he retired from the corporate world, but then he went straight into the nonprofit world and just dove right in. And that was his his whole whole role. He. Was he also worked with Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever on their board, um, and so his love of giving back from a philanthropic standpoint is definitely a very important aspect of what I do, and to be able to love what you do for work and have it not feel at all like work is also wonderful. <laughs> so for for what Dad did with you know rounding up the the troops in the field and the kind of the grassroots level of working with biologists and you know taking the time to understand what the impact is from a community level whether he was in Tajikistan counting Marco Polo lambs or working with the Okavango Delta river system to be able to figure out what concession areas are best for hunting within the government and importing export with 
CITES and all the different goofy entities that he would he would work with. I mean, he was a he was a brilliant um, bridge builder. You know that he he could he could have an in-depth conversation with a tribal leader or with a aristocratic European family, you know, so it was, it was something where I really admired his ability to be received well, wherever he was. That's fantastic. So what would you say for you? What, what, What's been most impactful for you, like in terms of, because you, you're you've basically following in his footsteps in terms of, you know, you do a ton of philanthropic work, you're, um, you're not for profit work involved with all these, th- you know, wh- how, what influence did that have on you? Is that a big part of why you do what you do? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, my, my mom as well, as far as just the giving back to the community, you know, when someone is is blessed, then it's a requirement. You know that this is if you have a talent, then then you you share it. So for for dad, absolutely, that his biggest uh, I think impact was just being that custodian, that shepherd of wild places, and and understanding that there there needs to be a balance and a voice um, for our lifestyle. It's it's just good to see that he's also, you know, he's had such an impact, uh, but he's also being recognized as having that impact, right? You know, he's he's touched so many people, and uh, you know, there's there's a hole out there in the universe with him, you know, no longer with us, and and we just see so much of him being honored and recognized, and and just we love seeing that, you know, what you're doing to to keep you know his memory and legacy alive, and to continue that work as well, Brett. So. I, I thought it was. Thank you. I thought I thought it was great this morning. Your Instagram story. It looks like you came to say hello. Oh my that goodness! Was crazy. Did you see that? I did. That was there, nuts. okay. So Papa Joe has this big white mustache, and I'm walking around, and there's like this little piece of litter in our our kitchen on the floor, and I pick it up, and it's like it's literally the shape of a mustache, and it was like some funky little cutting from within a shopping bag, like a grocery store plastic bag that must have got cut funny and then like fluttered mm-hmm. out. And I was like, Hey dad. Yeah. That was, <laughs> nuts. That was nuts. So I knew wild. we were going to, I knew we were going to talk him about, talk about him a little bit today. And like, saw that and I'm like, Oh wow. He's watching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that hole in the universe that there's no hole. He's still around. Absolutely. <laughs> That's great. So what's, what's next on the agenda for you? So you, um, you're back in Texas now, uh, what's next up? So you got a hunt planned. What's, what's on the agenda for fall of 21? Fall of 21. We're pretty much hanging tight. We had so many cancellations and postponed stuff. So now we're just kind of enjoying the, the catch up and riding the waves, um, with that. We have, let's see, the next hunt is Sonora for uh, Desert Bighorn. So we'll go down to Mexico for for that. That's going to be this winter. They, I think they typically go uh, November to February. They, it's a it's a wintertime thing, right? They don't, they're not hunting this time of year, are they? No, not this time of year. I think it's yeah. later, later on this year. Okay, I've got I've got a proposal for you. So we have an event <laughs> up here in British Columbia. It's called the Wild Sheep Jurassic Classic, and it's a wild sheep fundraiser. 
Um, and people come from all across North America. We get people from Texas and New York State. And so we have an event on August 20th to 22nd. And what it is, is it's sturgeon fishing on the Fraser River where they'll catch 10-foot sturgeon regularly. Uh, last year, they caught a couple 10-footers. Yeah. And uh, what well, we raise money for wild sheep. So we got a couple vacancies because of COVID. So you should um, talk to your guy and you guys should sort it up and come up and see us August 20th and 22nd. Well, are, are you guys open yet? I mean, your uh, borders I, all goofy. I think July 21st. Yeah, July 21st exactly. Oh, is that it? Okay, awesome. Yeah. So I it's not official yet. Yeah, for sure. We, <laughs> I'd love to have you come up. It'd be a fantastic event and uh, lots of really great people. And it's just such a fun, uh, a fun time and a good vibe. And again, it's a conservation community, right? We're bringing everyone together, people from all across North America. That's the cool thing is people fly in from everywhere and it's just a lot of fun, right? So, but uh, yeah, we'd love to have you guys up here. So the invites there, think about it. So thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think I've touched a lot on uh, everything I want to touch on. Steve, anything for Britt before we let her get back to her busy day? No, appreciate your time, Britt. I know this was uh, a long time coming. We chatted about it about a month and a half, two months ago, and just couldn't make it work. But I uh, appreciate your time today. It was absolutely great. Can I ask you guys one question? Absolutely. From a, uh, from a perspective of what can people who have an online presence do for you all? Is there any recommendations that I can do better or be more helpful or be more clear in my post, but also to any other, any other folks that have, have an audience? I, I don't see anything. I, I absolutely love your messaging. I think it's, it's, it's clean. It's classy. It's not a, grip and grin as Kyle got into and it's educational uh you don't you you don't get into the I know you are but what am I battles that uh some people do and it's it's great I I really really love it and uh yeah just keep doing what you're doing yeah we certainly appreciate it Britt everything um and you know the support you've lent one campfire and you know the shout outs you've done with our act now campaign and that sort mm -hmm. of stuff it's it's been really we're really grateful for that and um yeah, no, we just appreciate all you're doing. And I think I think if we're all doing what you could do in terms of influence in the world, we'd be in a better place. We wouldn't be having these issues that we have every day here. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, thank you. Right. Thank you. And please reach out to me if, if there's any other, other things that I can help promote uh, internally with conservation or hunter's rights or anything that makes sense to be able to help get the word out. Awesome, Brett. Well, thanks again. Have a wonderful day and uh, just appreciate all you do. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Have a great afternoon.